Welcome to the Legal Download Podcast, a rundown of the latest issues impacting your business from Kelly Dry. I know that you need to see action, and I believe that the national strategy that we're laying out shows and demonstrates strong and forceful action from EPA, a willingness to use all of our authorities, all of our tools, all of our talent to tackle PFAS. Welcome. My name is Fabio Dvorak. In today's legal download, we will be talking about the EPA's new PFAS strategic roadmap. Now, before we dig in, let me introduce you to my esteemed colleagues here at Kelly Dry's Environmental Litigation and Environmental Practice Groups, who will be helping me break down the roadmap. With me today are Maria Pimenta, Lauren Shaw, and Steve Humphreys. So let's get started. The roadmap is EPA's whole of agency plan to address PFAS contamination in the United States. Now, the roadmap doesn't work in isolation. It's actually part of a larger Biden-Harris administration plan to combat PFAS pollution in the environment. Now, as a part of this plan, the Biden-Harris administration formed an interagency policy committee on PFAS chaired by CEQ chair Brendan Mallory. And that interagency committee is going to coordinate efforts between agencies to address PFAS. And some of the agencies include DOD and the FAA. Now, what are PFAS? Well, PFAS are per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or fluorocarbons for short, which we'll use here. There's literally thousands and thousands of different uh, PFAS. Uh, They've been around since the 1940s. Generally, though, more recently, when we think of PFAS, we think of the two most studied and known PFAS, which are PFOS and PFOA. What is unique about PFAS is that the levels at which people are talking about regulating PFAS are extremely low. We're talking parts per trillion, and that's not something or a level that's common in the regulatory uh, universe. You're usually talking parts per million or parts per billion, so parts per trillion is significantly smaller. So how do we get to where we are today in the roadmap? Well, I guess the EPA story kind of begins in 2006. In 2006, the EPA entered into a PFAS FOA stewardship program seeking to reduce the level of PFOA in the United States in manufacturing processes. In 2009, the EPA issued provisional health advisories for PFOS and PFOA in drinking water. Uh, in 2012, UCMR3 for the first time asked public drinking water systems to look into PFOS and PFOA. In 2016, the EPA issued its health advisory levels, which are non-binding, non-enforcing limits for PFOS and PFOA in drinking water. Now, that level, which is still sort of the EPA level that we're talking about, is 70 parts per trillion uh, individually or combined for PFOA and PFOS. In 2019, uh, the EPA issued its PFAS action plan. And so we've been sort of operating under that plan until the roadmap kicked in a few weeks ago. Now, while the EPA was sort of sitting dormant, states have actually led the vanguard in regulating PFAS throughout the country. For example, as of this writing, there's 22 different states that have some form of PFAS guideline or standard. And these include drinking water standards, groundwater standards, hazardous waste designation, et cetera. Now, the roadmap kind of changed the scene here. It created a whole of agency approach meant to sort of regulate PFAS in every aspect for which the EPA has some regulatory purview. The plan essentially calls for 30 different actions over the next three years. So you can think of 
as you know, the administrative term for the Biden-Harris administration. It calls for actions under the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, or CERCLA, also known as Superfund, the Toxic Substance Control Act, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. Now, it, it would take several podcasts for us to talk about every single action that has been proposed in the roadmap. So for today's purposes, we're really going to focus on the major high points, if you will. Uh, I will be talking first about CERCLA and RICRA. After that, Maria is going to talk to you guys about MCLs and toxicity assessments in the plan. After that, Lauren is going to tell you a little bit about the permitting actions in the roadmap. And last but never least, Steve is going to tell you guys about TOSCA, TRI, and the recently signed infrastructure package and how that relates to the PFAS uh, roadmap. Now, if you do want to get more information about the roadmap, be sure to check out our Law 360 article on it. Uh, it's titled EPA Plan Changes PFAS Outlook for Companies and Regulators. Uh, it should be on the link at the end of this podcast. So with that in mind, let's talk about sort of the big action item, CERCLA and RICRA. Now, it's important to know that the roadmap actually doesn't talk about RICRA. Shortly after the roadmap was issued, uh, there was an announcement made by Administrator Regan that he would begin the RICRA rulemaking process. Now, RICRA, as a brief reminder, is sort of what everyone references as a cradle-to-grave regulatory scheme for waste and hazardous waste. So, as I mentioned, it's not part of the roadmap, but Administrator Regan announced his decision to begin the RICRA rulemaking process shortly after the roadmap was issued. And the rulemaking under RICRA was a direct response to a petition by Governor Grisham, that's New Mexico's governor, uh, requesting that PFAS be listed as hazardous waste under a RICRA. So the administrator Regan responded and he committed to two specific actions. First, he committed EPA to begin the rulemaking process to list four different PFAS as hazardous constituents under RICRA. And those would be PFOS, PFOA, PFBS, and Gen X. And the listing of a hazardous constituent is essentially the first step to listing these four PFAS as hazardous waste under RICRA. And of course, when you list it as a hazardous waste under RICRA, you are now a hazardous substance under CERCLA, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Second action that the EPA committed to doing is that the EPA will begin the rulemaking process to clarify EPA's authority through the RICRA Corrective Action Program to investigate cleanup and remediate sites with emerging contaminants like PFAS that meet the statutory definition of hazardous waste, but not, are not yet listed as hazardous waste under RICRA. There's really no timeline currently for when the EPA will begin this rulemaking process, uh, but I can tell you that the EPA's head of Office of Resource Conservation and Recovery essentially ruled out uh, that this rulemaking process will begin by 20 before 2023. So we likely should be on the lookout for first quarter or second quarter in 2023 for when we'll see the proposed rulemaking on that. Now, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, along with the RICRA designation, the EPA also committed to taking action under CERCLA. And CERCLA, as I mentioned, is the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation Liability Act or Superfund. And more specifically, the EPA has committed to two specific actions related to CERCLA. Now, the first action is that the EPA will designate PFOS and PFOA as hazardous substance under CERCLA. Now, we can be on the lookout for the proposed rule on that in the spring of 2022. 
And hopefully the final rule, according to the EPA, will be in the summer of 2023. Now, to give you guys a little bit of background, I'm not sure if you remember, but if I can take you back to January, one of the last actions for the Trump administration's EPA was that they des- actually issued an advance notice of proposed rulemaking to designate PFOS and PFOA as hazardous substance. Um, and then the Biden administrator came in and they issued its regulatory freeze memorandum, and that froze all actions that had yet to be published. And then we sort of waited a while to see whether or not the freeze would be lifted on the specific notice. After a while, it was taken out of the EPA's uh, website, so essentially it got deep-sixed. And a lot of practitioners are wondering whether the Biden administration would or would not try to reinstate the designation under CERCLA. And then months later, uh, actually on October 18th, when the uh, roadmap was issued, we found out what happened. And what happened is the administration is coming back and is coming back with the uh, designation of PFOS and PFOA. And as a second action, the other action that the roadmap committed to is issuing advance notice of proposed rulemaking on possibly listing other substances, PFAS substances, as hazards substances under CERCLA. Now, we don't know which substances that will be designated, but we do have sort of a bit of a writing on the wall. And that writing on the wall is the toxicity assessments listed in the uh, roadmap. Now, Maria is going to tell you guys a lot about that, but I can foreshadow that a little bit for you guys. The toxicity assessment that the EPA is committed to is essentially issuing six different toxicity assessments for six different PFAS. And that would be Gen X, uh, PFBS, PFBA, PFHXS, PFHXA, PFDA, and PFNA. Uh, the Gen X assessment was recently issued, which Maria will talk to you guys about. But if we were to look to see of what is the most likely uh, PFAS that they're going to try to consider as a proposed in that proposed rulemaking, those would be the ones that we should be looking for. And importantly, as well. There's a lot of discussion about whether the EPA would try sort of to regulate these PFAS compounds as single substances or chemicals, as group of chemicals, or as a subgroup of chemicals. The advanced notice proposed rulemaking is actually going to ask you for your input. So we'll be able to tell uh, after that proposed rulemaking what exactly the EPA plans to do as it relates to those designations. So what does this all mean for y'all? Well, for states, that essentially means that the designation of these PFAS, and that's PFOA, PFOS, PFBS, and Gen X as RICRA, uh, hazardous components and likely hazardous waste, and the two designations of CERCLA hazardous substance, it means greater regulatory burdens for monitoring and assessing sites and areas where these contaminants are present. It also means that you have greater authority under CERCLA and RICRA to require cleanup and remediation of these sites within your jurisdiction. It also likely means that you'll be able to uh, reopen certain Superfund sites to further investigation. Now, if you're a regulated business, for instance, what you should really be thinking about is you need to review your manufacturing process to see what PFAS, if any, you are using in your manufacturing process. 
You should consider how your business will have to adjust to ensure that the PFAS waste gets disposed in the right areas as a hazard designation, uh, a hazard waste designation for uh, certain PFAS will mean that you'll have to change the way you dispose of waste containing uh, PFAS. Now that also have downstream effects ranging from having to implement record keeping procedures. For instance, everyone should, everyone has ever worked in a record knows about waste manifests. Um, you'll have to hire or retrain employees to ensure compliance with, with RICRA procedures or regulations. And you also have to sort of look at your service agreements and think of ways you can uh, minimize your potential liability for certain PFAS. Now, on a related note to that, you'll also have to address and consider your possible liability un under CERCLA for PFAS cleanups and remediation. So as a brief reminder, under CERCLA, you're generally liable if you're a PRP, which are former and current owners and operators of facilities that have PFAS, generators of PFAS that arrange for disposal or transportation, or transporters who select the place for the disposal of PFAS substances. Now, if you're in an industry with extensive history of PFOA or PFOS use, such as airports, oil and gas facilities, manufacturing facilities that have used these fluorocarbons, you should start evaluating your potential liability and ways to minimize that. Now, Maria, we've been talking a lot about PFOS and PFOA as hazardous substances and hazardous waste. Can you tell us a little bit about what the EPA plans for these chemicals in drinking water? Of course I can, Fabio. So as of now, we have no enforceable limit on the amount of PFAS that our drinking water sources have. But like Fabio said, the EPA did develop a non-enforceable health advisory limit for PFOS and PFOA at 70 parts per trillion, which is an extremely low level. But as evident from the roadmap, the EPA has committed to regulating PFOS and PFOA and is currently working on setting maximum contaminant levels or MCLs under the Safe Drinking Water Act for these two compounds. And what the MCLs will do is establish permissible levels for these PFAS in our water sources. Basically, they'll allow the EPA to ensure that the drinking water is at a safe level for our consumption. The EPA expects to propose a rule for the MCLs by next fall, and it plans on finalizing it a year after that in 2023. The final rule will likely have enormous implications on businesses and state regulators across the country, and I'll get to what those implications might be in just a minute. But the businesses and regulators can actually try to get the EPA to address any concerns that they might have by submitting comments before the agency finalizes the MCL for PFOS and PFOA. Now, as to what the MCL will be set at, we don't really have a clear answer for that yet. For a while, many believed that the MCL would be at the health advisory level of 70 parts per trillion, but that health advisory was set in 2016 as a non-enforceable guidance, and now five years later, the EPA and regulators have actually filled some of the knowledge gaps concerning PFOS and PFOA, and in fact, the recent research indicates that a lower level might be necessary to adequately protect public health. Actually, the EPA just days ago published a toxicity assessment for GenX, which is another PFAS compound, 
And in that assessment, it stated that it was reevaluating the toxicity information for PFOA and PFOS. And whether that means that the agency intends to set a lower MCL level than the 70 parts per trillion health advisory level, we don't know. We'll honestly just have to wait and see. But let's actually discuss the toxicity assessment for GenX briefly. For those who may not be as familiar, a toxicity assessment is one of the many tools that the EPA uses to determine whether a chemical ought to be regulated. And in the recent toxicity assessment the EPA published, it established a reference dose for the amount of GenX that can be ingested during a person's life without resulting in serious health effects. And that reference dose is at a level far below the EPA's reference dose for PFOS and PFOA, and it's actually even lower than a reference dose the EPA had proposed for GenX back in 2018. So the fact that the EPA set this reference dose now at a much lower level for GenX likely means that the EPA will regulate this compound in the future. Now, earlier I mentioned that these actions that the EPA is undertaking to address PFAS in drinking water will impact all sorts of businesses and state regulators. As to the states, their actions are all over. A lot of states have actually enacted MCLs already, but the levels vary with some states setting standards as low as in the teens and others simply following the EPA's 70 parts per trillion level. The enactment of a federal MCL will affect these states that have already established standards by forcing them to comply with a possibly more stringent federal standard. Other states haven't set MCLs, but they do have bills pending that address PFAS in drinking water, and other states are simply inactive. How these states will react to the announcement of an emerging MCL for PFOS and PFOA will vary. For some, it might actually accelerate their state-led efforts to regulate PFAS. For others, it might have the opposite effect and halt their efforts while they await for the federal standard to be published. Beyond states, businesses directly involved with PFAS, as well as those that have no direct involvement with PFAS, will be impacted. Manufacturers, dischargers, and processing facilities that deal with PFAS will need to review their operations to ensure that they're in compliance, and they might actually also need to update their policies. If those businesses have confirmed or even suspected discharges of PFAS, they might also want to prepare for possible liability. But the MCL may also impact those businesses that have no direct relation with PFAS. For example, if a fire ever broke out in a business's property that was extinguished by using a foam that contained PFAS, that, businesses, that business may want to evaluate potential liability. So really, even if your business has no direct relation to PFAS, you may just want to review your historical documents to ensure your property isn't contaminated with the compounds. Drinking water utilities, too, will want to evaluate their intake and determine the source of PFAS in the water. And this might actually impact people and communities if the utilities decide to pass some of the expenses directly to its customers. But the increased focus on PFAS doesn't bring bad news to all businesses. Opportunities will rise for testing labs and water treatment companies that are either currently removing or developing methods to remove PFAS from drinking water. Now, we hear a lot about PFAS in drinking water because the general public seems to be most interested in drinking water and health effects. But Lauren, what is the EPA doing to prevent PFAS from getting into water in the first place? 
That's right, Maria. One of EPA's goals identified in the roadmap ties directly to permitting as they want to, quote, get upstream of the problem. The good news on this front is that according to EPA's roadmap, only a handful of industrial facilities produce PFAS feedstock and a small group discharge PFAS into water. Discharge permits appear in the roadmap section governed by the EPA's Office of Water. Here, the roadmap lays out two goals. First, restrict PFAS discharges from industrial sources through multifaceted effluent limitation guidelines. And second, leverage EPA's point source discharge permitting to reduce PFAS discharges to waterways. Let's back up. The Clean Water Act is one of the oldest environmental laws on the books, but it has to change with science and technology. PFAS is the latest example of the need for a change. Although, as Fabio mentioned, it's an unprecedented example. The unique challenge of PFAS will be born out of the Clean Water Act's technology parameters. Today, we are focusing on EPA's Clean Water Act permitting, although the Army Corps of Engineers shares authority for some Clean Water Act permitting as well. Industrial users and municipal sewage treatment facilities are typical holders of these wastewater discharge permits. These permits govern what are known under the Act as, quote, point source discharge limitations. Wastewater discharge permits include water quality-based effluent limitations, i.e. the agency looks at the relative health of the river or water body that receives the discharge, and also technology-based effluent limitations, or how stringent removal technology must be to reduce or eliminate a chemical from the discharge. Outside of those two requirements, wastewater discharge permits include monitoring and reporting requirements, standard conditions, and special conditions. EPA started last fall with guidance for permit writers to incorporate monitoring and control of PFAS into permits when PFAS are expected to be present. These are typically included as part of a permit's special conditions. An important development that allows EPA to monitor in a more meaningful way and move beyond monitoring to treatment is the publication in September of EPA-validated lab methods to test for 40 PFAS compounds. We've heard about other buzzwords like hazardous substances and hazardous waste. When it comes to talking about the Clean Water Act, the buzzword is pollutant. But it's not as easy as PFAS being added to a list of pollutants. EPA has a toxic pollutant list and a priority pollutant list. The toxic pollutant list includes 65 pollutant groups, and it hasn't changed much since its adoption. The priority pollutant list includes chemical pollutants for which the EPA has published analytical test methods and is more detailed, containing individual chemical names. The EPA pulls chemicals from the toxic list when they meet certain criteria, such as frequency. They become part of the priority pollutant list. This list has 129 pollutants. So, how will PFAS end up in wastewater permits? As I said, EPA permit writers have already been incorporating PFAS monitoring into permits. 
If PFAS are added to the toxic pollutant list, they will be added as a group. From there, individual chemical compounds will be added to the priority pollutant list, which will call for implementation of certain removal technologies, such as best available or best practicable. EPA has identified nine industrial categories that will likely be subject to such technology-based regulatory limits. The EPA Action Act of 2021 called out the plastics industry, pulp and paper, and leather tanning and finishing as three industrial users that may be subject to those technology-based regulatory limits. Further, the EPA-approved testing methods will help with assessing water quality, which plays into the water quality-based effluent limitations. So what can we expect next? Well, by winter 2022, EPA will be establishing national technology-based regulatory limits. In that same time frame, EPA will publish final recommended ambient water quality criteria for PFAS for aquatic life and human health. If you have a discharge permit, consider testing for PFAS, whether you expect to find it or not. See when your permit is up for expiration or renewal. Evaluate if it still aligns with your operations. Identify labs nearby that have the capacity to test for PFAS. And keep on the lookout for PFAS being added to your permit. Make sure that when you're working with your consultant and permit writer that you are clear on the particular PFAS compounds you are being asked to monitor and make sure you have a lab that uses EPA-approved methods for testing. If you are not a generator, pay attention to potential sources of PFAS coming into your facility. Ask your customers for updated sampling. Consider amending your customer agreements to give you leverage when it comes to PFAS coming to your facility. Steve, if we could back up a little more, before PFAS ends up in a discharge permit, how is EPA looking to regulate the manufacture of PFAS? Uh, yes, Lauren, I am going to address that very issue. I'm going to talk about EPA's PFAS roadmap and how it addresses the regulatory programs under a couple of additional statutes, one known as the Toxic Substances Control Act, which is for short known as TOSCA, not to be confused with TOSCA the opera. I'm also going to discuss the Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act, or EPCRA. And finally, as Fabio noted, I'm going to wrap up our discussion by hitting a few of the highlights of the recently signed infrastructure bill as it relates to PFAS. So let's begin with TOSCA. Now, TOSCA stands out for most other environmental statutes you've heard about from the other speakers that deal with cleanup and control and management of chemicals in the environment. By contrast, TOSCA is designed to address toxicity concerns in chemicals at the front end of the distributive chain. It does this by requiring various types of review, study, and approvals before the chemicals enter the market or are used for the first time for a new purpose. There are two areas in particular that EPA says it's going to focus on for TOSCA in its PFAS roadmap. 
The first is the pre-manufacturer notification or PMN process. This program requires notification and approvals prior to manufacture or import of new chemicals. A related program is known as significant new use rules or SNRs. These rules require EPA notification when an existing chemical is used in a different way that could create new risks. EPA can then follow up with additional requirements. So during the Trump administration, some PFAS were subject to a low volume exemption and a SNR exception for PFAS that are used in certain product applications. Under the Biden administration, EPA has now essentially halted these exemptions. And beginning next summer, it will require more rigorous safety testing and a review of a wide range of PFAS through PMN reviews and SNRs. The second area of TSCA that EPA plans to amp up is the testing and data reporting requirements for PFAS products that are already in active use. And it will do this under sections four and eight of the statute. By the winter of 2022, EPA says it will require more reporting on how existing PFAS are used as well as their production volumes, how they were disposed of, and the potential for human exposure and associated hazards. This will in turn provide the information needed for further testing and data call-in requirements. In addition, there are about 600 PFAS products that are currently on the market. So as Fabio said earlier, there are thousands of PFAS but uh, 600 are now on the market in the United States. So the problem becomes, how do you address all of those in a timely manner under the, you know, the TSCA regime? And EPA in its roadmap says that it's going to do that. It's gonna tackle that problem by addressing them in groups. Um, hopefully that will speed up the, the reviews. So that covers TSCA. Let's move on to EPGRA, also sometimes referred to as SARA Title III from the Superfund Amendments of 1986 when it was enacted. So this statute was enacted in response to the deadly chemical release disaster in Bhopal, India. It essentially requires companies that use toxic chemicals in their operations to notify local emergency response and planning officials about those chemicals. One section of the law that has received a lot of attention recently in regard to PFAS is the section that administers something known as the Toxic Release Inventory, or TRI. This is a list of toxic chemicals for which EPA requires reporting to local emergency planning agencies for any releases in excess of specified thresholds. Beginning this past April, as required by Congress, a group of 172 PFAS became subject to the TRI reporting requirement. So that means as of April, you were required if you discharged or released any of these PFAS to make your reports under uh, TRI in your form R's as of, as of that day. By next spring, EPA says it will expand industry reporting requirements and eliminate certain reporting exemptions for PFAS. And it will also add more PFAS to the list of chemicals subject to TRI reporting. So what does this mean for regulated entities? 
Well, it means that you will need to determine whether any of the listed PFAS are contained in your production process that find their way into any discharges or emissions, and then determine whether they add up to the threshold quantities that require reporting in your Form R's. Okay, so that wraps it up for how EPA's roadmap addresses TSCA and EPRA programs. Let me end with a few words, as Fabio said earlier, about the infrastructure bill recently signed into law. This bill will provide about $1.2 trillion, most of the funding of which will go toward addressing the nation's crumbling infrastructure with modernization of highways, et cetera. But about 55 billion of that amount is targeted for state and tribal assistance grants to address drinking water and water treatment. Of that amount, there's about 10 billion that will go directly to address PFAS and other emerging contaminants over the next four years. Four billion is, will be set aside for capitalization grants. Uh, these will be meted out through the drinking water state revolving funds. Uh, and those are for projects address emerging cont contaminants uh, with a particular focus on PFAS under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And then another $5 billion will be set aside for similar grants that specifically focus on small and disadvantaged communities. The finally, $1 billion will be set aside for capitalization grants for ca the Clean Water Act state revolving funds. These, will be, these um, amounts will be used for local water treatment facilities. Water treatment for PFAS is ex very expensive due to the extremely low level at which PFAS are toxic, as you heard earlier. So as EPA develops drinking water standards, funding through state revolving funds will be critically important for thousands of drinking water suppliers in order to meet the, the new standards. It will be interesting to see, as the regulatory changes outlined in the roadmap unfold, whether the, fold, the funding in the infrastructure bill will meet the need. So that concludes my remarks for today, and I will turn it over to Fabio to close us out. Thank you so much, Steve, Lauren, and Maria. As I mentioned earlier, for a more detailed analysis of the roadmap, check out our article on Law 360 titled EPA Plan Changes, PFAS Outlook for Companies and Regulators. Also, be sure to check out the Kelly Green Law blog in our website. Our article and bios plus the Kelly Green Log blog and our website will be in the short notes to this podcast. We will continue to stay up to date with the EPA's actions under the roadmap, and we'll be writing on these actions as they come out. So be sure to check back to stay current with the roadmap and how it affects you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. For additional information on this and other topics, please visit kellydry.com. Kelly Dry has podcasts available through your podcast provider.